Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. Happy New Year film fans as we invite some of our contributors and listeners to tell us their top films of 2019. A show so packed with contributors that we've had to split this into two episodes and push Neil out. <laughs> Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror films. Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. Time is short for intros on this one, Graham, as so many people want to talk about their favourite films of the year. OK, let's stop talking amongst ourselves then and start talking top films with our contributors and special guests. Let's start our roundup of top films with Phil Foster. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. This is going out on New Year's Eve. We recorded a couple of weeks before. And I think you want to add a couple of caveats to that recording date, don't you, Phil? I was going to say there's a few films that I haven't seen yet that I guess possibly could make the top ten, just in case I change my mind by the time this goes out. There's three that I haven't seen that I'm hoping are going to be really, really good, which is Star Wars Episode Nine, Marriage Story, which is actually out on Netflix now, but I haven't had a chance to see it, and Little Woman, which I don't think will be my cup of tea, but it's had really, really good reviews, so... Excuse me, there's a fourth. There's a fourth I think is going to be huge, bigger than Star Wars. Oh, you're going to say cats, aren't you? I'm going to say cats. (laughs) Good (laughs) yeah. And you're the only person in the UK who's going to be saying cats. Yeah. Well, I'll have an empty cinema myself then. Yeah, well, I probably will go and see cats. I'm sure it's possible. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody's seen it. They've withheld all press showings and everything. That's not a good sign. So it opens the same day as Star Wars. So if I was Star Wars, I'd be worried. (laughs) (laughs) the only other thing i was going to say was just before we go into my top 10 is i was going to say there's two films that i really really love this year but by sort of i guess uh release date rules i can't include and i just wanted to mention those two as well that's all right yeah 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 so there's a film on netflix called blue jay which uh written and stars mark the and it's a two-hander with him and sarah paulson it's only 80 minutes long. It's shot in crisp black and white, and it's about a couple exploring lost love. It's brilliant. I really, really recommend it, and I only came across it this year. And the other one, which Jeff and I discussed already before, we weren't sure. I think Jeff thinks I maybe should have included it, but I'm still not sure, is Cineworld did a advanced screening of a film called Queen and Slim, which is out in the UK in late January. It's stunning. It's a debut film by a music video director called Melina Matsukas. And it's like an awkward first date that then turns into a police traffic stop gone wrong. And it becomes like a road trip where the relationship develops and there's like a backdrop of sort of racism in America. And I thought it was outstandingly good. I wasn't sure whether to include it here or if I should keep it back for next year's best off because it doesn't come out in the UK till the end of January. So before your top 10 of the year then, I'm going to flip this because we've been all nice about these things. What's your biggest disappointment of the year? Oh, you put me on the spot there. Um, it doesn't have to be a film. It can be a trend. It can be It can be anything. Uh, well, I guess the Disney remakes, I've got a big sort of love-hate with the Disney remakes because in my blog, I think a year or two ago, I actually said that one of the biggest disappointing things then was um, the remakes because I really didn't like the Jungle Book at all. I thought the child actor 
was really terrible. And it really just, every time he did anything, it threw me out of the film. And every time they almost went into a song, they didn't, it's almost like they didn't quite commit to it. But I really, really love Beauty and the Beast. So this year we've had Dumbo, which looked great and had a couple of good scenes. And Michael Keaton was great, but really it was a bit dull. We had Aladdin, which is definitely the most successful of all of them, as far as I'm concerned, because it was a lot of fun. And I think that the two leads really clicked. I I was surprised by how much I enjoyed that. Lion King, again, was okay. And, you know, my kids loved it. They thought it was great because it's a big deal. It's on the big screen for them. And they have seen the original, but the original is just something they've watched on DVD at home. But again, you know, I think the Disney remakes are very hit and miss and I guess depending on your relationship to that particular film it's going to change I mean like Mulan's coming out next year and I never that was never a thing for me when I was a kid so you know I'd probably go in and enjoy that because it was never it's not going to ruin any sort of childhood memories sort of thing I'm looking forward to this top 10 so in at 10 what have you got for us Phil? Hustlers I know that Neil has definitely seen it I've seen it Neil Graham did the review didn't he? Yes we did Yeah I saw five minutes of it and I must go back to it. And the reason I only saw five okay. minutes of it is because I was on a plane and people around me thought I was watching porn. So I turned it <laughs> off. <laughs> okay, well, so this to me is probably my biggest surprise of the year. I really loved it. I thought the trailer for it looked terrible. I thought it looked like a really cliche, generic film. And when I watched it, I was pretty much blown away. I put in my review, I think that it's the sort of film you could watch as a double bill with Wall Street. It's got that sort of vibe to it. And I felt that it was taking a lot in terms of style from Goodfellas. So very much like a Scorsese sort of vibe. I absolutely think Jennifer Lopez should be getting Best Supporting Actress this year for her role in it. I'm a really huge fan of Fiona Apple. The the music cue with her song in it was just brilliant. I absolutely loved it. But yeah, it is is a bit porno in the first five minutes. And you think, (laughs) oh my God. what!" And then strangely, you get drawn into the characters and you think, all right, these girls are just working. You know, this is their job. And then the bankers screw up and their job disappears. And what do they do? So it would fit in the same bracket then as I haven't seen it yet with something like, Phil, you mentioned Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Also The Big Short. So it fits into that sort of era. Not just that as well. I think that it's the friendship that you see between these women. Um, So I think it's Constance Wu and Jennifer Lopez, you know, there's a real heartbreak sort of in, you know, they become just absolute best friends, like live their lives with each other. And then, you know, something that happens in the film, but kind of breaks that apart. And actually there's sort of moments where they don't want to give in, but they want to know how the other's doing and that sort of thing. It's got layers to it that really work. I'm ticking the box to go watch this now and porn be damned yes. if anybody's around <laughs> me. Okay. Yeah, that sounds really good. Number nine, Phil. Joker. Wow, that's so, far away from number one. Wow, okay. So I had issues with it. I loved it. It's weird because I've just said, you know, Hustlers as a Scorsese vibe. Well, I think Joker, for me, just takes it ever so slightly too far. I think without the casting of Robert De Niro, I think everybody would be saying that this is just a rip-off. I know that it's got a lot of layers to it. It's got an amazing central performance. I really hope that they don't make the sequel that they're talking about. I think it would be much better as a standalone piece. The further you strip away the veneer of that character, you ruin it in terms of, you know, it has to have some kind of mystique 
to it. And I think we all talked about, you know, the what's real and what isn't real. Felt like a 70s movie. It felt like a character study. I just think that it also just felt a little bit too derivative. I wanted there to be something that was its own. To be honest, somebody tell me what that is and I'll watch it again and try and find it. But Derivative of what, Phil? The storyline, I felt, is king of comedy. And obviously the De Niro casting is throwback to that. They basically have De Niro sort of swaps roles from king of comedy to Joker. I felt like the character was Travis Bickle, Christian Bell from The Machinist, and Joaquin Phoenix's performance in You Were Never Really Here. And and I just felt that it was, you know, this was a a director who really, really clearly loved King of Comedy and Taxi Driver, and he wanted to do his version of that. And I find it sort of almost troubling that we've got such really, really, really good film that lots of people went to see, but you have to wrap it up in superhero for it to get the budget and for it to get made and for it to be in a lot of different screens and get all the advertising. And it's little things like that that don't really have a bearing on the film. They pull it down for me as much as I really, really liked it. So what you're saying is even with all those caveats, it's still a great film. Still a really, really good film. I really enjoyed it. It felt like a 1970s Scorsese film. It's kind of like, well, when does paying homage and stylistically borrowing from someone become just a bit too much? I like your point about uh, You Were Never Really Here. I absolutely love that film. And I would say that's one of the my top films of the last five years. It was just a joy to see some of those points. I mean, nobody went to see You Were Never Really Here. I mean, it was very low key and a lot of people didn't see it and a huge amount of people go to see Joker. And I thought some of the the, the key points uh, were brought out again in Joker and I just loved it. I, th- I thought Joker was really good and it had mass appeal. It dealt with some really serious issues of mental health and what's true and the totally unreliable narrator. I thought cinematically it was brilliant, but... It's not a patch on, you were never really here. And that's and that kind of sums up my point, because I loved you were never really here as well. I thought it was brilliant. I, it's almost like I'd love the millions of people who went to see Joker because it was a superhero film and it was advertised to the nth degree and it was on four screens in every cinema. I want those people to see you were never really here and like that film rather than the film that's copying other things that shouldn't detract from how good Joker is. But I find it frustrating that Joaquin Phoenix gives as good, if not better, a performance in a film a couple of years ago as he gives in this. But everyone talks about this and they forgot him for that because it was lower budget and wasn't about superheroes and didn't get into lots of cinemas. Flawed, but still great. Mm. Okay, number eight. Avengers Endgame. <laughs> Masterpiece. So, you know, I know Jeff doesn't like this, but look, this is also a film that has its flaws, and I'll I'll accept it has its flaws, but for everybody who's been invested in comics their whole life, or just the Marvel films, this is the culmination of a huge project, and it's all about fan service, and it absolutely delivers. It's so much fun. There's so many bits that I could just geek out over. And so this is in here because this is about how much fun a film can be. Let me just say, before I ask any comment here, I really enjoyed Infinity Wars. I thought Infinity Wars was a great superhero film. But this 
to me, and I accept where you're coming from, and, and Graham will come from the same place in a minute. <laughs> yeah. It was sloppily handled, sloppily written, poorly executed. I don't know what drugs you were doing because I don't <laughs> think you saw the same film as me. I thought Infinity War was the perfect setup. It was a great film. I've no argument with either of you. It paid that. off. And it didn't pay off. Oh, it did from in fact marvel to my mind creatively have had a shock in you we shall have to agree to disagree but i thought it was brilliant fun and i just loved it from beginning to end it'll be interesting to see where marvel go from here i have seen the trailers for black widow and that actually looks good i thought that does look good but it's got florence Pugh in it yeah. certain film magazines put avengers endgame at number one and how oh, i laughed when i read that but uh, we don't, because we're serious, and uh, they're just messing about. I believe we're on number seven now, Phil. And this is another one that we've discussed before, Jeff, and I think you're going to disagree with me slightly. Us. I thought it was the best horror film this year. I think it's a really unique idea, and the central performance from Lupita Nyong'o, where she plays the two opposites of herself, was great, and I really, really enjoyed it. And I know that you've got problems with the end. I have huge problems with the denouement. She's brilliant. And she made another horror film this year called Little Monsters, which is wonderful. And she just shines in that film. First two thirds of us, in fact, no, I'll go further. The first three quarters of us are really good. It plays like a Twilight Zone, you know, push to the limit, which obviously is inspiration. And Jordan Peele has now done a Twilight Zone series, I think, in the States, which we haven't seen yet. But it's just the payoff. It just fell apart. He just over-explained it. He wanted it to be a bit more coy. Yeah, because... It's like, the, like the bit at the end. So I don't want to ruin it because I, I, don't, I don't think it was as well-watched as some of the other things I've mentioned. But the bit at the end, they could have been a bit more subtle about when they're driving away in the van. Even if it doesn't stick the landing, which I do disagree with you on, but even if you think it doesn't stick the landing, it's still a really good film. Oh. Without a doubt. I mean, Jordan Peele, I think, is a great director. And do you know what that ending made me think of? Trading Places. All right. Yeah, that whole nature versus nurture, which I thought was good. Yeah. Yeah, and I I guess, actually, that's probably the underlying theme of the whole thing, isn't it? I do agree with you. Visually, it's really good. Number six. If you're American, this is 2018. So this is the favourites. so this came out, I think, January 1st or 2nd this year. Yes, like that. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, as, it's as long ago as it could be, but it just still sticks in my memory. There's three fantastic performances. Obviously, Olivia Coleman won Best Actress Oscar for it. Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz are also brilliant in it. It's really funny. It's really sad. It's really happy. It's everything all at once. And for me, Olivia Coleman screaming at the footman for looking at her is still one of the standout <laughs> funniest moments in cinema this year. I think Emma Stone was wonderful in this. Everybody mm. goes on about Coleman, but I think she was just so good. She was the catalyst. And I think she, was she was the catalyst really and she was so funny. And-, and what surprised me is how much of it's true. Yes. <laughs> I know. It's Other than the rabbits. I enjoyed it, and I, I do agree. I think Emma Stone was a, a little bit overlooked. That's not taken away from anybody who's in it, because it was great performances all around. Number five. If Bill Street could talk. You are championing this film unbelievably well. 
And the music. I love this film. I, I love it. Okay. I sort um, of got that. <laughs> I don't know many people who saw it, and I don't understand why. It's amazing. And the score is amazing. And I think I mentioned that to you, Jeff, when yeah. I saw it. Because I know you like a film yep, score. Definitely. I don't recall there being much buzz for it. I mean, it's the follow-up film to Moonlight, which won Best Picture. So I don't really understand why it didn't get buzz. What's the it's plot of a- it, Phil? So it's a really beautiful, heartbreaking love story. It's set in the 70s, and the story is a young couple in love, and the man is accused of rape, and and they're black. So it's difficult for them to get the correct legal team and to fight this. It's just about how, I don't know, maybe I'm sappy, but it's kind of like love conquers all. So in the face of, you know, this difficult time, it's about sticking together and what they'll do for each other to try and get through this. I actually think it would make a really good companion piece to the film I mentioned earlier, Queen and Slim. Oh, you, you, must, and- you must have read my mind because I was thinking, hang on, this is <laughs> sort of in the, same, yeah. in the same area. So Queen and Slim is modern day and this is the 70s and... I actually think it would work great as a double bill because it's almost like you'd expect that society would have moved on, but actually you've got these two stories side by side that kind of are a similar thing. But there's quite a lot in Bill Street that just gives it a dreamy sort of quality. So I think the camera work really reminded me of Terence Malick. There's a voiceover as well, which again is very Terence Malick. And it does this weird thing where... um, Normally, it's a sin to put a camera staring directly at a person so that they're looking directly at the camera. You wouldn't do that because it makes you feel uncomfortable. But they do it regularly in this film, and it works. It's about getting the emotions of these people across to you, and it's kind of directly sort of searing it into your mind. And it's just got this beautiful jazz score over the top, and it really clicked with me. I just thought it was great. I've definitely got to see this. I, I have got to see this, yeah. Number four. Knives Out. So this is, for me, one of the most fun films this year. I think we've talked about this before, and I think Jeff, again, will probably have some caveats, but I thought it was really clever. It's really witty. I really like the murder mystery, actually. I think that it actually works. You know, sometimes, you know, you get the final sort of, this is the reveal, and you're just like, I would never have got that. That's impossible to work out. But with this, I actually think, do you know what? I think there are enough clues throughout that do kind of point you down that path. It's a great set, great cast. I love the house that is kind of almost a character as well. For me, it was a, a case of style, you know, the Agatha Christie novels that they were trying to emulate over the substance of what's underneath of it. I didn't know if Daniel Craig was trying to be Hercule Poirot or Inspector Clouseau. Oh, that's harsh. <laughs> no, no, well, really. I don't think it is. I think. Yeah, I think he is. I think it's, al- it's almost one of those things where it's like Columbo gets his man because he makes him think that he's stupid. Kind of a bit of that. There are a lot of really good qualities in there. There's some, yeah, some, some good people in the cast. The music score's great. Johnson's very stylish. I just think he's copied the style, but he hasn't given it hard. And I do think highly of it. I think it's got flaws. But I think it is a film everybody should see. Saying that, we're on to number three, Phil. So Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I have had an awful lot of people tell me that this film is the most boring thing they've ever watched. So I I think this might be, you know, a, a Marmite sort of film. But I thought it was anything but boring. 
I mean, it's a film about films. So obviously I'm probably in the right wheelhouse for that sort of thing. It's Tarantino just leaning into his favourite things. So he's got lots of obscure film facts, lots of talking, and Jeff's favourite, lots of feet. I get why people wouldn't like it, I suppose, but it really is just great. DiCaprio and Pitt were fantastic. I'd be surprised if both don't get nominations. And Margot Robbie is just luminous and just lots of fun. It's interesting that the tenser scenes are the ones where they play the closest with the Manson family. Yeah. Pitt's visit to the ranch and, of course, the ending of the film. The whole thing of those westerns and, you know, the character of James Stacey, which to me was an iconic moment in that movie when he goes off on the bike because I know what happens to Stacey and, you know, shortly after that, but he loses his arm and a leg in a motorbike accident. I think it's slightly too long. I think he could have done with a little bit more editing. Any last words on that one before we move on? I'm conscious we monopolized that conversation there. No, no. I think I said what I wanted to say at the beginning. I just, I'd be happy to just sit and watch DiCaprio act out that Western that he was acting out. I'd be happy to just sit that over and over. Number two. So we've talked about how a lot of people are referencing the master, so we might as well have the master in here. So it's the Irishman. You know, Scorsese had to go to Netflix to get this made. I guess if you're a big fan of Scorsese's gangster films, you think that that's a bit ridiculous because he's got De Niro, Pacino and Pesci. All of them are faultless. To see De Niro in two really, really good films with two really, really great performances really buoys my spirit because I loved him growing up. I thought he was just like the beacon of what acting should be. And to see Joker and to see The Irishman this year, just really, really great stuff. I I would agree 100% with that. It has its flaws. I mean, the thing I would point out that I know was slightly clunky is you know, it does the de-aging. That some of that looks good, some of it less so. I think that the film's good enough that you kind of forget that and you put that aside. And to be honest, I actually find the clunkiest thing was not how they looked, but the fact that how they move. Yeah. So there's there's a scene where Pacino has to get knocked off of a chair. It really is clearly a body double. And there's a scene where De Niro has to... Um, a corner shop store owner up. He looks like a young man, but that's not how young men move. <laughs> They're the clunkiest moments, but the, the film itself is gripping. I mean, I saw it at the cinema for the premiere because they, they had it dotted around some cinemas whilst it was premiering at the London Film Festival. I was just gripped. Three and a half hour film. I didn't get, get up once. I watched the whole thing. I think that it's everything that De Niro has always wanted, I think in my review I mentioned, you know, he clearly is interested in growing up and living with the damage that you do as a young man. And so he's made The Good Shepherd and he's made Once Upon a Time in America that are both watching somebody grow up on both sides of the law and how their devotion to it has affected their family life. That's exactly what this is all about. But I just think it's so expertly done. Actually, I guess if anybody's going to win anything, it's Joe Pesci. And he came out of retirement for this, and I think he does not put a foot wrong. He plays a quietly spoken, very, very scary individual. And I also saw it in our local 
art high cinema. What you said, Phil, I agree 100%. I thought the clunky bits were very clunky. Again, I thought it was just a masterpiece and three and a half hours just flew by and I could have sat for another three and a half hours. It was that good. I'm seeing it next week and really looking forward to it. So, Okay, so big moment, drum roll, number one. Ad Astra. Oh, what? <laughs> I knew you were going to say that, Graham. Oh, this God. is a joke, isn't it, Phil? Come on, what really? No, what's your number no, one? Come on, come on. I, I love, I love this film. I might be a sucker for science fiction, but when we talked about it, and um, I, I don't know, have you seen it, Jeff? I know, Graham. I have seen it. I saw it in a senior screening down in Stroud, and there was a woman behind me all the way through the film, and all she said was, "This film is shit." And every now and again, <laughs> this film is shit. And by the end, I, I, I was quite convinced she was a decent critic. Um, <laughs> no, on, what what, what worked for you then, Phil? For me, it's grandiose space opera. It's a father-son drama. It's got touchstones in Apocalypse Now, in that it's a man going on a perilous journey, and 2001 in terms of, it's a space opera about humans and our place in this world or in this solar system or this universe. And I really liked it. I think that it's quiet and long and soft-spoken. It's a classic science fiction thing where this long journey and this sort of thing about it being in space, none of that matters. None of that is actually what it's really about. It's just about relationships and how humans interact with each other. So you've got this lead character who is afraid that you know he can't love people properly because his father left him um and yeah he does this perilous journey to find this patriot who became a fanatic and none of that phases him at all none of that transferring from the earth to the moon to Mars and beyond or whatever the order was, none of that phases him. The thing that phases him is how is he going to deal with the emotional reaction to seeing his father and why does his father do these things? And that's what resonated with me and that's what I loved about it. Um, And I really, really loved The Lost City of Zed. It built on the themes of that, about single-minded person going on a journey and that journey actually sort of revealing to him who he is. When I said to you and I say it to everybody else, what's the most disappointing thing of the year? I don't say a lot of people say, well, what's your worst films of the year? Because that means different things to other people. It's disappointing because nobody sets out to make a bad film and some films resonate with people and some don't. For me, Ad Astra didn't resonate. I couldn't see it, but I'm glad it worked for you. Yeah, um, for me, it just did not work at all. I mean, it's called science fiction. The science is first, and the science was all over the place and and nonsense. And maybe I'm too analytical, but by the time he got to Neptune, I couldn't have cared if his father turned into a space monkey. You know, I just, I'd lost the will to live by then because there'd been so much wrong with this thing. And it might have been a, a quite a dramatic but, scene, but I just thought, I don't care but, about you or your father. I just want this film to end. And that's what, probably it. What I find interesting is the way that Phil's looked at this is something completely different to the way yeah, I looked yeah, at well, it. And I think that, you know, that 
philosophical point was completely lost on me in the film, but it worked for other people. So that's that's really good. I'm not sure it worked for that many people, though, Jeff. <laughs> I do very much know that I'm in the minority in terms of I don't know that many people went to see it, and um, and I knew that when I would when I would say it out loud that that was my number one film, I knew that you guys wouldn't necessarily agree, but. Yeah, there's something about it. It's weird. It's not like I—I I don't even have an absent father. He's been with me all my life. But I love—I love, I seem yeah. to resonate with father-son sort of storylines for some reason. No, Lost City of Z, I loved. Yeah, I thought yeah, that was great, yeah, was and good. I thought parents completely driven, yeah. and that the son comes along with him. He's just so tunnel vision, the father, and doesn't care that there are people in his wake that are getting destroyed as he steams forward to do something that he really wants to do. Which yeah. could almost be described in this film. Yeah. But that's the thing is it's interesting because obviously you're saying like the science, it, it completely is beyond me what is scientifically incorrect about the film. I wasn't even looking at that at all. To me, the science fiction aspect of it and the space travel aspect of it just gives the director the ability to have some really, really pretty visual landscapes for him to film against and sort of put like some amazing pictures up it's to me it's all about his colonel kurtz but he just happens to be his father and you know what is that and you know that is the emotionally breaking sort of thing not the the actual travel and it's almost for me it's set in space just because no matter what he did in terms of you know if he'd done like oh he's in the north pole or something like that it couldn't quite be on the same scale in terms of look at how easily he's traversing this time and space. You know, well, let's make him travel, you know, two thirds across the solar system. It's a good choice and it's been a great conversation. <laughs> Thank you, Phil. Thank you for sharing with us your films of the year. Yeah, uh, thanks very much. Yeah, and I look forward to more, many more discussions as we go into 2020. Thanks, Phil. Thank you very much, Phil. Thanks, Phil, and a happy new year to you as well. Graham, would you like to introduce our next contributor, please? Back in show 57, we spoke to Dingle about his memories of cinema in the 1940s. Dingle has been a lifelong film fan and still gets to the cinema as often as he can these days. Let's ask him about his film year. Dingle, welcome to the show. Hello. Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Same to you, Jeff. Before we go into your top 10, I understand you've got a couple of awards to hand out for certain films. So let's start then, I think, with your Turkey Award. Holmes and Watson. Oh, good oh, grief. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Somebody else remembers it. Uh, I he, watched it on Sky. It was an ex, like, just an excruciating waste of good talent because it was yeah. Will Ferrell and J.C. Riley. I mean... It, it was so late, but it just wasn't funny and... An absolute shock. I, I can't Absolutely. say there were any other really bad films nowhere near, but that no, was not, that was not like one. that. I mean, when you think you had talent like Ray Fiennes, yes, he was another one. Steve yes. Coogan had a small role in it. Yeah. Rob Brydon, yeah, and it was just it was truly awful. I remember sitting in the cinema and the time just seemed to drag. Couldn't believe it was happening. Yeah, <laughs> it was that bad. And it's less than ninety minutes. That's yeah. how scary it is. Well, it seemed like three and a half hours to me. <laughs> Let's be honest, I. Can't say I've had that since. I don't think you'd want to stumble across another film like that. To be I, quite I think honest. there's been a marvellous lot of films this year. Yeah. We'll stay with turkeys and let's move <laughs> to your biggest disappointment. Oh, that was the film Judy. 
Okay, oh. Rene Zellweger. I was so looking forward to it because I've always liked Rene Zellweger anyway yeah. and I've always been a Judy Garland fan, but the film just didn't work. And I mean, Rene Zellweger's voice, it wasn't no Judy Garland's voice. And it, yeah. you know, so it was her singing, it wasn't dubbed then? I know, no, it was her singing. Oh, okay. But they, it didn't, it should have dubbed it or something. Yeah. It, it didn't work for me. And Moving on, the film Everybody Liked But You. To be honest, when we do it, between the three of us, when Neil's here and Graham myself, those two against me. Oh, you know, right. Graham will not like something. Neil, yeah. like a sheep, follows him. And oh, then they sort of just so they, they, they just pick on me then. Yeah. So so let's see now you're in my precarious position. What is the film that, that you didn't like that everybody else liked? Here we go, yeah. Well, Downton Abbey. I'm with you on that. <laughs> yeah, and we haven't seen it. We haven't seen it. I, but we, I, we, we sent Darren in for that one. Thank you, Darren. <laughs> I don't want to be cruel, but it was it was so childish and cheesy. The backdrop, there's a lovely backdrop, but it's so childish and cheesy. It should have been left on the small screen. Didn't transport itself to cinema. Not for me, anyway. Yeah. They're going to make a sequel to it, so you won't be rushing to see them. No. <laughs> it's on again next week for the... Over 60s. Yeah. Darren took one for the team. He went to watch it. And actually, to be fair, Darren, he quite enjoyed it. Yeah. But I'm glad it wasn't me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd rather watch a Marvel film. I don't say yeah. that often. Oh, wow. No. Dingle's most controversial film of 2019 and, is... And it was easy to pick again. Well, for me, it was Joker. Oh. Yeah. I can actually see that. Yeah. I thought Yuck and Phoenix, his sort of portrayal was... So amazing, but at the same time, disturbing. And I, I found the whole film. Subject matter wasn't covered as it should be, should have been, I don't think. And it really bothered me to watch it. And I could understand people walked out. Yeah. You know, they didn't see it through till the end because they were, you know, a bit upset with it all. I didn't. I wasn't going to do that, but I, I um, sympathised with those that did. That's fair enough. And I think... And I've said this before, the most controversial scene for me, and it's deliberately played, is the scene where he's in full costume dancing down the steps to Gary Glitter's Rock oh, and yeah. Roll Part 2. Yeah, that's a good point, that. And, you, you know, you've got yeah. anarchy of the character yeah. to this piece of music that you don't hear anymore no. because of the connotations with it. And nothing says controversy more than that. No, I looked for it on the credits, and there it was. There it was. Yeah, performed yeah. by Gra- Gary. Oh yeah, Glitter. no, no, Gary Glitter gets yeah. the royalties for it. But and, and I... since his exploits, like his music hasn't been broadcast oh, yeah. anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet it came across on that film. Quite, and quite Gag- odd, really. Because it... Gag, you brought that up, Jeff, because I had noticed and I'd forgotten. Yeah, during the eighties, um, there were loads of Disney films like The Mighty Ducks, one, yeah. two, and three, and they all used Gary Glitter's music. The irony of that isn't lost. Um, <laughs> that was when he was coming down the that steps. Coming down the steps, yeah. and I yeah. think that yeah. that scene says everything about what this film is trying to do. Oh. I think it's morally dangerous, but artistically brilliant. Absolutely, yes. Let's move on to your top ten. Yeah. In reverse order, yeah. what's number 10? Lion King. Oh, the right, remake. Okay, the remake. Yeah, the one that's... Yeah, 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 yeah. I haven't seen it. So I'm curious on there. I think it's Disney to its best, and it's like, you. there's not much of a plot to it. You can just sit back and just enjoy. No, I haven't seen it, so I can't comment on this. But a lot of things I've read said, it's good, but it's not a patch on the original animation film. What's, what's your well, view I didn't, on that? I didn't see the original. So you haven't seen it. Okay, so you're okay. seeing this. No, no. So that's an interesting way to yeah, see it then. Yeah. How long ago was that then? Uh, uh, 94. 
And I loved the animated one. I yeah. really loved it. And I, and I thought this was a shot-for-shot shot remake. You've um, seen it then? Yeah, you? I've seen it. Yeah, I saw it with Neil. Because we both loved the, the animated original, the classic, as it were. And we just thought, yeah, this is very clever, but it's just like one giant computer game. But I imagine then, because you've got that comparison where Dingle's coming at it from, and it's an interesting perspective, and very few people would have done this, is to see this film but not the animated uh, yeah. film. And in that case, it works. Yeah. yeah. So, I think I said at the, at the time, there were a lot of young kids in the cinema watching this, and they were wowed by it. They were very quiet, and yeah. they were just watching it. And I think for a modern generation, it works. You know, But for me old yeah. man that I am, the classic will always be the classic. Yeah, I've seen the stage show. I love the stage show. And I've seen good, the stage but, show. The yeah. stage show was fantastic. Yeah. So to, to you then, Dingle, it gives you that sort of, you know, the wide expanse of yeah, Africa yeah. and all of that yeah. came across for you then? Yeah, it, it was, question, you know, escaping to the cinema, escaping yeah. up on that screen. What do you think of the music? Not amazing, but yeah. suited the film. Elton John and Tim Rice did a lot of the songs. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting choice. Number nine. I often find that good films are often taken from a, a true story. Yeah. And the film, which is number nine on my list, Fighting With My Family. Oh, yes. Yeah. Which, oh, it's a bit of a feel-good movie, really. It's, it's based on an actual wrestling family who wrestle, yeah. not with each other, but go off wrestling, from Norwich Way somewhere. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was good. It was a bit of a feel-good movie, and it was so original, good entertainment. I would agree. I mean, you know, Stephen Merchant, who's known for his work with Ricky Gervais, wrote and directed the film, so he gets his mate involved, like, um, you know, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, is there as yeah. well, uh, playing himself. Oh, of course, but, Dwayne Johnson was in it. Yeah, yeah. It happened some time ago now. Yeah. And that scene where... The kids keep stopping him to ask him what his advice yeah. is. And he says, you know, your advice, don't ask me for any advice. Yeah, yeah. You look like a reject from Harry Potter and you've not seen a son in about 20 years. <laughs> that was uh, a great line. Yeah. Isn't he huge? Yeah. He's a big lad. And the wrestling ring is full of characters like that. Yeah. I agree with you. It is a feel-good film, isn't it? I mean, yeah. particularly when they start to work as a team at the end, yeah. do you think? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it works. Good choice. I always say the sign of a good film is one you want to go and see again. Yeah. How many times did you see that? Yeah, I saw it twice. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, number eight. Number eight, The Good Liar with Helen Mirren Ian McAllen. Yeah. And it was a super plot. Again, it's not one I've seen yet. I missed it so far. From start to finish, it held your attention. Yeah. And there's a surprise at the end. Yeah, the trailer says each one's playing the other, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 But McKellen looks quite an evil character throughout oh, he was. Well, What with Ellen Mirren and you know, Ian McKellen, well, you can't go wrong, can you, really? No. And it sounds like the script is first rate. Oh, it was, absolutely, from A to Z. I'll gloss over talking too much on that one because I haven't seen it yet, and I think it works if you don't know the plot. Yeah. So we're up to number seven. Oh, this might be a bit of a surprise, but I've always been a Clint Eastwood fan. The film is The Mule. Yeah, great film. And I wonder... You've seen it now, yes? Yeah, I've seen it. Oh, yes. you agree? I'll ask. Yeah, yeah I, I put it in my top ten as well. Oh, good. I thought I stuck my neck out here. My individual top ten, it's in. I was really fascinated and loved this film. I thought Eastwood's character was incredible. It, he played against type quite a bit because he was almost a bit of a flake, really, wasn't he? Yeah, the story gradually 
develops so credible sort of way because he's so old. He's a good cover to be a, a, a drug runner, really. Yeah. And when he gets a new pickup, they don't expect a new pickup, and so forth. But he was always nice to people, and I think yeah, that was the that's thing. right. Yeah, and and yes, they they obviously they embroidered certain things about the story, but yeah, he was just a generally nice guy. Yeah, and I think that disarmed them. And of course, when it changed later on, when it becomes a much darker story. Oh yeah, again, it is all a character piece. You got this guy looking at his life where he thinks he's failed. And trying to right the wrongs yeah. at the end, I think, and I thought that was yeah. just a great, just a great film. I, I loved it. I, I thought, um, yeah, it was uh, tremendous. It didn't get as well played as I, I think it should no. have done. Very low profile because it was on your top ten. I just downloaded it and watched it. Yeah, on on streaming. So yeah, and I was I was very impressed with the tonal shift towards the end. You know, the fact that it just suddenly starts, well, not, not, not suddenly, you could get sort of little hints earlier on that this is not going to go well for this no. guy. Great choice. So we're now moving into number six. This is a lovely film, and it's sort of another feel-good movie, I'm afraid. Um, Peanut Butter Falcon. I hear great things about this film, and I'm sad to say I haven't seen it. So tell me a bit about the plot. It's so original. Oh, well, it's this lad who's handicapped. He makes a, a, an odd friendship with this man who's a bit of a hothead, being sought after, actually, uh, during the film, being followed, and finally the, the people are, w- want to pay him back, catch up with him, and he's all this time he's befriending this lad with Down syndrome. Right, yeah. Their friendship is the story of the film, really. The lad wants to become a wrestler, a fantasy, in a way, the actual scenes at the end where he does get into the wrestling ring and win. A very original. Okay. What does the title mean? There was a wrestler called Falcon, so he wanted to be called Falcon. So that was his wrestling name? That was his wrestling name. It's getting rave reviews, yeah. I must admit. Yeah I'd, yeah, I'd like to see it as well. All right. Okay. Number five. Laurel and Hardy. Oh, masterpiece. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Loved it. In a way, it's a bit sad and... This is what happens to performers when they get to the end of their career. Yeah. And bit because I was a Laurel and Hardy fan for a, a long, you know, from a very young age. But I didn't know much about their later history when they came to this country. Yeah. Performing on stage. Yeah. 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 But I think J.C. Riley and it was Steve Coogan. As yeah. They um, did so well between them. And the two women that played their partners yeah. were really oh, were yeah. really good as well. Oh, no, we saw behind the scenes what was actually yeah. going on. Yeah, the performances were great. I mean, that come down they had when they first landed in the UK and they ended up in Newcastle. Yeah. Yes, of, um, all, of all, well, don't shouldn't say that, but of all places. <laughs> but yeah. it's an unusual place when you bring in stars, you, you put them in Newcastle. Newcastle in the 50s as well, it must be said. Yeah. You know, you're not going for the bigger venues to start off with and it builds and builds until they get to the bigger venues. Yeah. yeah. And that moment when yeah. they're working together yeah. at the end, which is the, the triumph. And I think the performances were amazing. Yes, they were. I think both of them were really, really good. But that's, that's what carried the film, really. And a massive box office hit. So we're on number four now, I think. Yeah, Rocket Man, the biopic of Elton John. And I think it was the best of the biopics of the year. Certainly better than Judy, it, eh? Yeah. <laughs> well, you got it there. It tells Elton's story like warts and all. Yeah. And Elton had his input and he made certain it came out as it was. 
I thought, actually, Elton John, you had to admire him by the time the film is finished. He really battled his way through his career, you know, with his performance and with his private life. I don't think life was very easy for him. The, I think it's nice at the end of the film, in the credits, it showed him with his family. Yeah. yeah. And I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah. He's definitely overcome a lot. The music was brilliant. Oh, his the music, music was great. Is, yeah. And all sung by Taron Edgerton, who I thought did a great oh, job of singing. I, I, yeah, I, actually, I got that then. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Elton yeah. John praised him on his singing as well. well it, was his, it was Taron Egerton's voice, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He trained for it. and uh, Oh, yeah, and as you say, Elton John was very much in praise of, of him and the, and, the, yeah. and the film itself. Great young actor. Yeah. I think one of yeah. the, the bright lights of Britain at the moment. Good choice, good choice. Are we into the top three now, then? Vice. Yeah, good film. Mm. What was it about Vice that you liked? He was such a powerful figure, wasn't he? Shady, powerful. Shady and powerful, you're <laughs> right. Yeah. And Sam Rockwell as George Bush. I mean, I don't think... George W, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. He wouldn't have been too pleased about that. <laughs> I thought he captured him quite well. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't the brightest, uh, no. was he? Really? It was Christian Bale. Yes. He took on the part. And Amazing, he padded yeah. himself out a bit, didn't he? Put all that weight on for Vice, then lost all that weight for, for, for Le Mans 66. Absolutely. With Vice, it, it, it covers... A very difficult character. Uh, in a, I mean, we had one of our shows this year. It's been a big argument about Vice, where we had uh, a discussion with a, a couple of other people who've seen it who really didn't like it, which made for a, a challenging and interesting show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah. yeah, it was good that I like it when people don't have the same opinions and, and you can talk about it. Yeah. We're on the same side with you as Vice. We think it's it's an excellent piece of work. So top two, top number two. two. And these two, the top two, weren't difficult to pick. So, well, which order to put, which one to put second, which to Can't put Can't have first, you on this thing, I've got, <laughs> I got this right. Anyway, second award goes to the Green Book. My film of the year. Oh, oh right. Yeah. <laughs> That's an easy one for Jeff. I, I thought Vigo Mortensen is the driver come chauffeur. I thought that was the performance of the year. Yes, I, I, I could wax but, lyrical on this all night yeah. long. I think oh, good. Great. Viggo Mortensen, as you say, so against type and brilliant. And how he didn't choke to death, driving, speaking and eating. And smoking. Yeah. And smoking yeah. all yeah. at the same yeah. time. Yeah. It's just really good. Has yeah. he done many films, Viggo Mortensen? Viggo Mortensen was in Lord of the Rings, which is where he made... His, he stepped into that after the original actor that was playing Strider or Aragorn was let go because he wasn't working. I suppose in the film he's betraying an Italian New Yorker. Yes. Yeah. Would that be right? Yeah. And yeah. he does it so well. Yeah. The film History of Violence, yeah. another film yeah. he made, yeah. which is really well I, I think well if you had to pick out the best performance of the year, that that would be it for me. I, yes, I, I would agree. I, I thought he played against type. Great guy. He could talk yeah. his way out of anything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tremendous, yeah. But as I said, that is my... So your number two is my film of the year. Yeah. My personal choice, not the combined uh, team one. So it's drumroll time. Go on then, number one. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Wow, now, okay. I'm, perhaps that's not going to be film. a popular choice. So oh, no. Top 10. But I'm a Tarantino addict. The story is this could be just one more film to go, but let's hope not. I thought Brad Pitt and DiCaprio on screen, they just lit up the screen. And they, they sparked off each other. Now, from, I saw that, dare I admit it, four times. Four <laughs> times. And, I and it's not it. a short film it's either. Not, no, no. no, but oh, it goes so quickly. 
I loved it. That's just my choice. And one of the things that really gelled for me in that film was all the references back to the TV westerns I grew up with. Yeah. Did that yeah. work for you? Yes, all of it worked for me. And, of course, he got the backdrop of the Manson murders. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, he didn't follow it truthfully. No. Oh, no, they it, changed it. And, it, yeah. it went off-piste a bit. Apparently, there is a film coming up called One Charlie com- Says. Yeah, it's coming on yeah. Sky, yeah. Because I can remember when it happened and that Sharon Tate, beautiful girl, pregnant girl, and she was slaughtered. And it is interesting. I mean, if you go back to something he did, like Inglorious Bastards, where you've got oh, at the it. end, he rewrote history because they killed Hitler. Spoiler for any of you who hasn't seen it, but then, you know, if you're listening to this, you've probably seen every Tarantino thing going. Yeah, I haven't missed any. <laughs> I think, you know, we're there. That I thought that was a bold move. And it was a strangely satisfying move. All these, like, evil hippies then sort of getting wasted, I, I, I was quite pleased by that. Yeah. I, I thought Leonardo DiCaprio did so well in it. All good oh, performances. Brad Pitt didn't have quite such a big part, I suppose he did, but they did so well together. Yeah. Have they filmed together before? It's a really good question. That's credit to yeah. Tarantino because yeah. he was the one who thought of he, He's the used them both in different films. Yes. But, but he's never put, they've no, never been in there together. No. That's a good one. Yeah, no, that was good. Yeah, but the whole thing was really good. Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate was yeah. good. And that just that feel of 60s Hollywood. That's a big thing for me about the cinema. We don't travel a lot. But the cinema brings abroad to you. Yeah. <laughs> All right, yeah. Not, it's not the same. But you get some idea. Hmm. Yeah. I guess that's a really good choice. And certainly it's been a big hit this year. Yeah. And as you say, he says he's going to make one more. I, I don't quite believe it. His output has never been dynamic anyway. We shall see. Well, Ding, it's been a real pleasure. Well, it's been a pleasure for me, Jeff. Thank you very much. Thank you, um, yes. Right, okay. Okay. It's a wrap, I think. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dingle. Really appreciate you Uh, telling us your films of the year. Enjoy doing it, Jeff. Thank you, Dingle. Jeff, back over to you for our next contributor. During the year, we were joined in our review section by Darren and his excellent film knowledge. So after seeing all those movies, what did Darren rate as the best of the year? Hello, Darren, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Yeah, all building up uh, for Christmas? The end's in sight. I work in retail, so I have a different... Oh, uh, I, I see, a, yeah. I, I have a different attitude to it, but yeah, I'm looking forward to Christmas Day. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, all those lovely customers who know exactly what they want. I'm sure it's great fun. <laughs> <laughs> so... Before I go into your top five, what is your biggest disappointment of the year? Oh, right. That's easy. My biggest disappointment is uh, Godzilla, King of Monsters. And it gives me no pleasure to say this because I've always been a big fan of all the different Godzilla movies, apart from the Matthew Broderick one. And I really liked the, uh, the, the reboot one a few years back. And I absolutely loved Kong Skull Island, which is set in the same um, universe. And so I was like really, really excited for this one because it had like Rodan in it, it had King Ghidorah, it had Mothra. I thought this was going to be great. I was just really let down by it. I think the problem is a film like this, you need to give the humans something interesting to do. You can't just have it to be all the monsters all the time. I think they did that really well in Godzilla. I think they did it well in the King Kong one. The King Kong one especially, yeah. Yeah. Even if it's just them trying to survive and, and escape, you need to be invested in what they're doing. And in this one, I just 
weren't. I found my characters boring. I found what they were doing just made no sense. It was really dull. You've got Charles Dance as a villain and he's not very good. I mean, how do you get Charles Dance not good? It just boggled my mind. And even the fight scenes, some of them were good, but some of them were like so close up and dark, you couldn't see what was going on. The ending, how Godzilla won the fight at the end was like unsatisfying. I was just really, really let down by this one. Do you think that's why they put back Godzilla versus Kong or Kong versus Godzilla? I don't know which way around it is. From, from I think the reason why they've put it down is not so much the quality of the film, it's because it bombed at the box office. Because originally, I, I believe it was going to be released in the summer. I think they put it back to either November or December. No, November next sort of, year, yeah. Is it November, yeah. I think they've basically done that because they realise it's just going to get sort of slaughtered at the summer and it'll probably if they sort of release it when there's not as many blockbusters around. Fair choice, fair comment. So let's go from the bad to the good. Number five. My number five film is Booksmart. I actually thought this was a good year for comedies, even though they weren't actually about sort of successful at the, at the box office. It is really, really funny. I think the chemistry between the two leads is absolutely off the charts. But you, you really believe that these two are sort of, even though they're very different people, that these two are friends, they've got this sort of like nice bond between them. The humour is just so dry. There's some like really sort of adult humour and just some like sort of like really witty stuff. We've seen so many sort of coming of age films throughout the years but to do something which is like really really fresh and feels original is is a real big achievement so if you're wild's first film as a director and the film didn't do that well at the box office basically more to do with the fact that the distributor screwed up how they marketed it and everything but i thought this was just an absolutely fantastic movie it was um, charming it was funny it was moving and it was like a real sense of sort of like sort of making your way in life I, I, i just was absolutely charmed by it yeah, I think it had the craziness of something like Ferris Bueller's Day Off as as it went through. That That's the thing it reminded me. For me, the standout was Billy Lord. I thought Billy Lord was just tremendous in it. Just so funny. But yeah, good good, good film. No, I loved it. I lo- it's definitely my comedy of the year. Good choice. So what we got for number four, Dan? For number four, I went with Us. For, for me, was probably the most deep, intelligent movies of things going on below the surface. The thing about this film is what I love is you can enjoy this just as a really freaky, scary uh, horror movie. But if you actually sort of like, you know, think about the film, there's a lot of clever themes going on. The whole point of the film is basically showing how um, people's success in this life is almost just like a lottery of the environment that they're born in. So there's no real difference between people who are on the top and at the bottom. It's just the cards they're dealt with, either the race that they're born or the area that they're born or the poverty that they're born into. So you've got a lot of that going on. There's also so many other elements that when you read more and more about the film, make it sort of more sort of like striking, enjoyable. If you go into the film knowing just a little bit about how um, Hands Across America which was something that came along in the 80s, how that went down and the things about that. That plays a really key role in, into the film and understanding what's going on. The performances were great, but the doppelganger um, family were absolutely terrifying. There was also a lot of humour in there as well, which is something that um, reminded me of Get Out. I, I know some people who saw the film and didn't like it because both things about it that didn't make 100% sense. Yeah, you're, you you're talking to, make, to me there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think you've got to basically take some some of it as being like a fantasy and some of it just sort of, that is, a lot of it is sort of like quite, you know, 
you've got to look for more of a metaphor than the actual sort of the reality of the of what was going on. And I and I accept all you say, and for three quarters of it, I'm with you completely. I think it's brilliant setup. I love the way it expanded, and I didn't expect that. But I think less would have been more. He started giving out all this explanation as to why it happened, and it just got sillier and sillier and sillier. And had they left a lot of that almost like it was another dimension without trying to give anything away mm. on this, because I think had he done less is more, it would have had a, a bigger impact for me. But I understand what you're saying, and I can see why it worked for you. Okay, shall we go for number okay. three? Yeah, definitely. So number three is Le Mans 66 or Ford versus Ferrari, depending on where you um, where you live in the world. Yeah. I only saw this film recently, and I absolutely loved it. There was so much going on in this film, because you had, on the one hand, you had the characters who were the, uh, the racing enthusiastic drivers who were looking for path to redemption, or chasing glory one last time, you know, or just wanting to race just for the, the love of it. You also had corporations who were in this for their own agenda, whether it be help their own brand or basically just out of spite, just to sort of like, you know, beat the other team as, as Ford were trying to do with Ferrari over a petty little slight. You also had all the infighting and the clash between those sort of cultures. Great performances across the board from like, from, from Bale and Matt Damon. Uh, but also was a guy in it, George Lucas, who had this like really great role in it as this like slimy, corporate exec who was basically always trying to push his own agenda. He was just so hateable. You know, you just wanted to wring the guy's neck at times. But then the, the racing scenes, I thought, were absolutely fantastic. I actually had the um, pleasure of seeing this in IMAX, and it was such a great way to see it because it was the roar of the engine was so loud. And it just really put across the sort of the danger that you had that these drivers were going through. I mean, that's some, something that I think, you know, but it's set in the, of the time it was the, the 60s. Motor racing, dri- uh, driving racing is dangerous in any era. But back then it was even more dangerous and Le Mans is such a dangerous race. They really got that across. The cars were like shuddering all over the place. It really, you know, and I thought the races were excellent. I just thought this was an absolutely wonderful sport movie. Interesting in what you're saying there, because like you, it's in my top five. I think it's a wonderful film. If Bale isn't at least nominated for an Academy Award for his performance, I, I think there's no justice because you get that real depth of these characters. And and what I liked about it, though it's set in 65, 64, 66, that impact of World War Two with those people that have been through it is still there and still resonating a bit you know, in what they do. So I think that was really good. So, number two. Okay, uh, my number two film. Um, this is something, I've, I've, a film I've been like, you know, waiting for for years. And it's worked once upon a time in Hollywood. <laughs> yes. And, and, and this, this was the, the Tarantino film that I've been waiting for him to make since Jackie Brown. I was, I was kind of like a, a lapsed Tarantino fan. I thought his, his early films were absolutely great. And but the sort of along the way they became more self indulgent and, and longer and and you know and, uh, but this one even though it had all that it had all the style the dialogue um, the humour the craziness that made me such a fan it was in his element here because he was basically making a film about movies I just absolutely loved it. For the most part, he didn't lag. I think the only scene where it sort of started to slow down a bit was when the um, 
Rick Dalton was actually filming the Cowboy episode. Yeah. I thought that maybe dragged a bit. I think one of the problems with that scene as well is most of the film felt authentic and that moment didn't feel like TV shows were made. Westerns from the uh, the late 60s weren't like that. felt to me like a Western, more like Deadwood. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, I see what you mean. Whereas Westerns made in the 60s were more hopeful. For, for the most part, yeah. You... Generally, I, I love the, I love the, the creationists. And I, I liked it how it was sort of a film about the sort of the change in Hollywood because you had Rick Dalton who was sort of like this sort of celebrity having to deal with the fact that Hollywood was kind of moving in a different direction from the films that he had. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that for me was one of the, the key things was that even the physical placement of Polanski's house being above... DiCaprio's house and how he had to go up the hill to the new era and all of those sort of physical clues. I just, uh, I, I just can't praise this film enough. I yeah. loved it. I, strangely, I love that bit with DiCaprio filming that piece for that film with the little girl on his knee and, and you know, him holding her hostage. I thought that was, that just sparkled for me. I actually reviewed this film with you uh, on one of the first shows yes. I did with you. And, and one thing I forgot to, to talk about was the Sharon Tate character with Margot Robbie. Because I know there was a lot of people that said that she um, she was shortchanged because she didn't have a lot of dialogue in, in the film and stuff. And uh, Tarantino actually uh, threw his, um, his toys out of the parameters uh, when somebody actually asked him about this in the press conference. The thing is, I thought she played a really vital role in it because the scene that always stood out for me was when she goes to the cinema to watch her yes, own film. Yes, absolutely, yeah. And the, and that scene is, goes on at the same time as the Rick Dalton um, where he's sort of like falling apart. And I thought that scene was great because she sort of represented like a young starlet whereas he was sort of getting cynical about Hollywood. She was in awe of it. And we're seeing where she's in the cinema and she hears the audience around her laughing and enjoying the film. The look of glee on her face, I thought was like heartwarming. But she sort of got the, the innocence and the sort of it. She's seen the movie business as a wonderful thing. In a weird sort of way, makes what happened in real life more tragic. Yes. Even though that's not what we get in the film. I thought her role in it, even though she didn't get a lot of speaking areas, I thought her role actually told a really important part of the story. And and again, the bit where they go to the Playboy Mansion and she meets Mama Cass and they're dancing by the pool. And she's just full of joy and fun mm-hmm. and she's enjoying it. And Steve McQueen, as the old grizzled actor, is making really snarky comments about he her. allegedly did have an affair with Sharon Tate. He had an affair? Oh, right. I didn't know that. But he comes across as old Hollywood and not very nice and, and worn down by the system while she's still bright and bubbly and f- sees things as fun. Yeah, I I really enjoyed those sort of juxtapositions and there are a number of them throughout the film. So, your number one film then. Drum roll, here we go. This is going to be a quite divisive choice, but... If, if I was to pick any other film than this one, I would be being very disingenuous. And my number one film of the year was Avengers Endgame. Hey! <laughs> Jeff's just put his head in his That's hands. really great, Darren. <laughs> okay. The fact of the matter is, this has to be my number one film of the year because this affected me emotionally like no other film did. It was uh, just, Me too, uh, actually. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can imagine. In a year when we've had so many half-hours, blockbusters and, and films that are just going on past glories. 
I really think that this showed why the Marvel universe has been so successful on film. And it's because they sort of cared to actually raise the stakes as they went along and actually sort of not just turn out a half-assed project, but actually expand on it to a really good conclusion. I think the first hour of this film was absolutely breathtaking in how it basically deconstructed the, the heroes, where it basically showed you them having to deal with defeat and loss in a variety of different ways. Some, some of them actually sort of just torn apart. Some of them just walk away from, from life. Um, it, the first time I saw it, uh, what they did before, I didn't like it. It just seemed like a really trivial comedy piece. But when you actually you know watch it again, this is a guy who's basically suffering from a, a form of um, post-traumatic stress disorder in, in his own way. Yes. You know, but just sort of little things like that. It, even though it's it's a fun film, it's you know, it sort of it goes into the you know the, the time travel aspect, and you get the big battle at the end. That to me, that sort of tone weighs across the whole film about loss and moving on, and also getting second chances. And I just thought the the film was absolutely incredible. I mean, you can call it fan service, and some some people were. But there were so many rewarding moments for people who have been watching this franchise for 10 years. Just little things that brought back on, like, for example, Avengers Age of Ultron. There's a little scene where Cap tries to pick up Force Hammer and it just moves ever so slightly. It's yeah. so slight that no one really notices it except for. And then that finally paid off in the moment where he gets Force Hammer. And I have to say, when I was in the cinema, my arms just went straight up in the air, like in <laughs> triumph at that moment. It just totally really affected me in a way I've not sort of in a film before I just absolutely loved it the fact that we finally got to see Cap say Avengers Assemble after all this time and all these little teases in the past I got goosebumps and even though it was just a big CGI battle I got goosebumps when everybody started coming back this was a film that it rewarded its fans yeah and I just thought it just sort of did everything so great for want of a better word it stuck the landing you know, the number of times that we get disappointed in TV shows or films when we get to the, the ending and everything's frankly sort of worn out and you're just ready to finish, that this was the end. And, and I realise that certain people listening to this won't, won't appreciate this. <laughs> no, I, love, I love the fact you keep repeating this is the end, and I just know it's not. <laughs> um, I couldn't agree more, Darren. This is why I like films. This is why I like these discussions. Because we're all different on these things. It's clear that both Darren and yourself have got this passion for this film, which I haven't got, but it's really good. And, and to talk and understand why. That's why I never said what are your worst films of the year? What's why it's what's yeah. your most disappointing? Because nobody sets out to make a bad film. And Darren's right. These films are made for the fans. So, and I'm not a fan, clearly. So, Darren, excellent choices there. Yep. For I like the number one. <laughs> <laughs> so next month, we're back to normal with our schedule. And um, glad you'll be joining us for the reviews. People have been asking us, where's Darren's dash? It's back, back in January. January. <laughs> it's dashing back <laughs> in January. So Darren, thank you very much. Have a happy new year. And we will, will. speak to you soon. And as a scoop, next year, we're going to be talking Star Trek movies with Darren. Yep, we are indeed. Can I just Sorry. say one last thing before I go? Yeah, sure. If you sort of enjoy my, my top five, I always write a top 11 films of the year. So if you want to see what my choices from um, six to 11 
would have been. Check out that will be coming out at the end of the year. And also, because there's a few films I've not seen yet, my top five might even change between now and then. That's great, Darren. And I'll definitely put a link in the show notes to that so people can find it. Thank you very much. Cheers, mate. Cheers, Ed. Thank you. Thank you, then. Thanks, Darren. And I hope you have a great film watch in 2020. Graham, would you like to introduce our next contributor, please? In episode 64, we spoke to Hadil, who runs the wonderful site Pulp Serial. Hadil has excellent taste in movies, as do all our contributors, and I am fascinated to hear what is on his list. Hello, Hadil. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Ah, very well. Counting down to Christmas. Right after this, I have to go leave the house and do Christmas shopping. I'm really behind. I only have one person done so far. So, have you had a good film going year? Yeah, I mean, definitely there's some stuff I've missed. I've been trying to play catch up a little bit. Your sort of local cinema then, does it tend to show just the blockbusters or does it do art house movies as well? We have two art house cinemas that used to be locally owned by like a couple. And now they're a part of the landmark theater chain that's owned by a billionaire, Mark Cuban. And so there's about 50 of those around America. And we have two of those in town. I don't think we even got blind spotting last year. So I had to completely miss that one. And then sometimes it only plays there for like a week. Like I said, Team Spirit played there for like maybe five or six days. I didn't get to watch it. That's why I'm going to try to uh, catch up with it on Hulu, or sometimes I just don't have time. Like I still ended up missing watching uh, Loose just because every time I was down there in town, I was doing something else. So what would you say this year has been, and cinema-wise, has been your biggest disappointment? Let's get the bad out of the way before we go with the good. I mean, I I think it's a little obvious. I talked about this movie last time I was on the show. Uh, Definitely Once Upon a Time in Hollywood (laughs) would probably be my biggest disappointment. I mean, you changed my perception on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I look at it in a completely different way now. And the same with The Hateful Eight for me. (laughs) Things that just pass you by and you feel such an idiot when somebody points them out. But yeah, very interesting perspective on Mr. Tarantino. Because he's accused of the obvious racism. It's almost like a magician. Look at this. The real thing misdirection. Going on over yes, here. misdirection. Yeah. yeah. You did bring an interesting perspective on that, and I appreciate that. So let's get to the good. What's at number five in your top five list then? Okay. So I, before we get started, I do want to say that I have cheated just a little bit. There are only five movies, uh, but usually I don't start ranking them until okay. New Year's Eve. But I did make a short list of 11, and then I'm picking five right now to talk about. So they're all going to be on my favorite list at the end of the year. They just might be in a different order. And that's fair enough. And other people have caveated this list as well because of where we are in the year with some big films still to come. So number five. Okay, so number five is a movie I did see in the first half of the year. And I was one of very few people to actually watch this. Um, It did get a wide release, but not a lot of people paid attention to it. Uh, My number five is The Sun is Also a Star. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So, um, yeah, right. We're hastily checking on that one here as to what it's about. Could you tell us what it's about, Hadil, please? Okay. um, So it is a a young adult romance film. I'm not normally into those types of movies. The material is definitely elevated by the the cinematography and like the the color correction and like the music and the style of it. It's done in a very 
uh, Mike Mills type of style. He's the director that did like beginners and 20th century women. And so the way this director does it, um, she does a very good job at it. Narration comes into the movie, but narration is mixed with different like pictures and different like B-roll footage uh, to explain things about the characters' lives because almost every single character in this movie is a person of color. I think only one speaking role in the entire movie belongs to a Caucasian character. So uh, the characters have a lot to teach you about, especially uh, the character that she falls in love with, who, if I remember correctly, he's Vietnamese, Vietnamese. Or Korean, I can't remember exactly, I apologize, it's been a while since I watched it, but he talks about how his culture has kind of taken over the wig culture in America. I didn't know about this, about how like certain hair care and and wigs and different things are all kind of coming from one country when it comes to American consumption just because of, like the history of American dealing with foreign countries when it came to like importing this kind of stuff. And so there's even like a part in the movie where he breaks it down and explains to you why America has had uh, trouble with different foreign countries and importing this kind of stuff in the past. And it's, it's a really interesting movie. In Trump's America, that must be an absolutely fascinating thing to watch, I would have thought. Exactly. Sorry, sorry if I went out on a tangent. It's just a, a, a movie I feel really strongly about, and I feel really bad that even though, again, it did get a wide release, if I remember correctly, from Warner Brothers, a major studio, uh, very, very few people went to go see it. And it's just really eye-opening and interesting. And it is about immigration because even in the trailer, they show you that the main character in her family is getting deported to Jamaica after they suffered from an ice raid. And everyone keeps telling her, like, it's okay. Like, you're going back to Jamaica. It's not like you're going back to, like, a worse country, like, trying to make it seem not like a big deal. But to her, it is a big deal because she's lived in the United States for like the last 10 years and she wants to go to college and in her journey, trying to keep her family from being deported. uh, She ends up falling in love with a a young Asian American man that she ends up uh, spending the entire day with. That's really interesting because (laughs) I don't know if you're thinking the same thing. Yeah. I'm thinking Windrush. Yes. So we had a big scandal here that's come out in the last couple of years, but all these immigrants that came in from the Caribbean uh, and areas like that into the UK, because after World War II, we had a shortage of labor and they came in and they settled and they're now three generations, some of them into their families. And then suddenly a couple of years ago, the government decided, no, you've got no papers. We're going to start deporting you. And it's been a huge scandal in this country and everything you're saying just taps into that vibe and i'm amazed this hasn't been big in the uk i as far as i can see i don't even think it's been released i don't think it has been in released in the uk yeah the release is even weird here too like i bought the dvd at target but they never even did a blu-ray release for the movie they only released it on dvd so you could tell warner brothers didn't think a lot of this movie as well because of the the numbers it brought in yeah it's only on dvd in the uk it didn't get a release here, as far as I can see. That one is written down, and I really think great. in this day and age, that's uh, definitely one to see. Thank you. Especially because you can uh, support a young female director. I think she's only done like three or four movies before this one. So I definitely you know, wanted to go to the theater and kind of vote with my dollar uh, to support her, because she's really talented. Like When you see this movie, even if you just watch the trailer on YouTube, uh, the cinematography for the film is kind of 
phenomenal for something that's supposed to just be, you know, a teen romance movie. I am now on the edge of my seat after that one to see what number four is. Okay, uh, number four is, again, kind of a no-brainer for me. If uh, if you've been following me on Twitter, obviously you know I love adventure pulp movies. And number four is Dora and the Lost City of Gold, uh, which is something... <laughs> wow. <laughs> really? I am stunned. Yeah, no, I love this movie. Wow. Okay. Got good reviews. It Got did get reviews. very good reviews. Okay, why should I see it? Definitely, it's much more clever than you would think of a movie based on a, a cartoon made for preschool children. Yeah, um, exactly. That, that you, you're reading my mind. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, I, I fully understand the reaction. Obviously, when I first saw the trailer, I, di- I didn't think much of it. I thought it could be cute. But obviously, when I had I, I learned a little bit more about it, I uh, definitely rushed down to the theater. Again, this is an, another movie that was released this year where the entire cast is made up of people of color. It's an entire uh, Latinx cast, except for a couple Caucasian characters in the movie. And basically the movie starts out similar to the cartoon, but then you realize a couple minutes in that actually the whole like Dora cartoon, the whole inanimate objects talking to her thing is actually her delusion. And the character is actually delusional and thinks these things are talking to her and they're not a part of the real world. There is a couple really funny bits early on where she talks to the camera and other characters are really confused and ask her who she's talking to because obviously the camera and the audience isn't really there. And then the movie moves into her having to attend high school and it's a really cute fish out of water story similar to the the Nancy Drew film from 2007 where she is just utterly happy and grateful and kind to everybody and in los angeles you know 2019 people are are very confused by the ideal of somebody just being kind for the sake of kindness (laughs) right and then and then of course she gets kidnapped and taken to the jungle where you get really great supporting actors like benicio del toro and uh eugenio derbez and um, it's just a really fun, loving uh, adventure pulp film where, of course, they, you know, they have traps and, you know, they're getting shot with arrows and they have to do puzzles. And it, it's just a, a love letter both to the genre itself and then um, allowing people like me to see people who look like members of my family star in a movie like this. Because obviously, you know, this is my favorite type of genre and to not only see uh, a good uh, addition to the genre, but to see myself in these characters for the very first time in my life. What's the backdrop to draw Dora? Is it based on a series of books? Is it based on an it's old a children's era? cartoon? Oh, TV series. TV series. Well, that's where yeah. that's where my kids watched it, and my children watched it on telly. Well, actually, now you've described it, this sounds fabulous and right up your street. I love the fact that they play with breaking the fourth wall. The fact that it's not a fourth wall and nobody understands who she's talking to. That just made me smile. That sounds great fun. And it's very pulpy. It sounds just right up your street. Exactly. And there's even like a disclaimer uh, at the beginning of the movie where Benicio Del Toro, who plays a fox, um, he talks about how like everything in the movie you're about to see is true, except for the depiction of foxes. That is a uh, hurtful stereotype. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. And so obviously this movie, again, is, is really self-aware and it's willing to make fun of the material, but at the same time also be respectful of the, the main character because it's not like she she's not the butt of the joke necessarily. You really feel like you're laughing with her. And then, you know, when she has triumphs and when she, you know, has goals she needs to accomplish, you're right there with her and you're ready to uh, cheer her on. Now, what's interesting listening to you on this, Adil, is that all the reviews and everything I saw about the film, because this did open in the UK pretty much about the same time, I think, in the summer, is that it seemed very st- a straight-laced sort of adventure film. What you're describing is something much more off the wall. It sounds like the studios didn't market this properly. I, I would agree. I definitely, like I said, when I first saw the trailer, I I really wasn't sold on it. It wasn't until I went to go see it in the theater when I realized what type of movie it really was. And I've heard the same thing from several other people, like a film critic, uh, William Bibliani. He just watched it uh, recently and he was tweeting about it. And again, he was extremely surprised about how much this movie was willing to uh, play with the world and play with the audience's expectations and, you know, really change your view of it. So hopefully it, it looks like I think it made like a hundred million dollars worldwide. I'm hoping that's enough so we can get more of these. Definitely. Again, that's now gone onto my watch list. Oh, yeah, me too. I just checked it and Dora the Explorer came out in 1999 in the UK when my kids were 10. Okay. So that's why I recognize it. Yeah. So this is, this sounds quite subversive, actually. Wrap it up as a kid's movie and then do some other very clever stuff inside of it. Yeah. That's great. I'm impressed with this top five. There's two out of two that I now really want to see. Yeah, exactly. So I can't wait for your third. All right. So my, again, my number three is um, from the first half of the year. Um, I'm really confused why this is getting snubbed at award season so much. I mean, I don't think the, the film as a whole would get Best Picture nominations, but the actress very much uh, deserves them. Uh, my number three is uh, Gloria Bell, starring Julianne Moore. Oh, right. Yes. I've heard a lot about this movie. I haven't. Yes. So I, what's it about, deal? Okay, so it's from uh, Chilean director uh, Sebastian Lelio, and uh, he's the guy who directed uh, A Fantastic Woman a couple years ago. I saw that. That was a great film. And so, again, there are certain themes about life and, you know, and how people view you and stuff like that in this movie. I I have a feeling that it's being snubbed is because uh, this is a remake of a movie he's actually already made. He remade his own movie. There is a 2013 Chilean movie just called Gloria, uh, which is basically the same movie as this, as far as I can tell. And it stars, again, Julianne Moore as Gloria Bell. She lives in Los Angeles in 2019. And it's about how she's basically trying to live her life as a middle-aged woman. She goes to like nightclubs at night and she tries to find somebody that she can uh, call a companion because she is somewhat recently divorced from Brad Garrett and they have two adult children together and it's been a number of years since she has had a boyfriend or a companion and so she ends up meeting uh, John Turturro who again gives an amazing performance in this movie as he does in every film so basically the movie is about uh, their relationship together and about how he might not be the best person for her and might be a little toxic but she kind of overlooks that because she, again, she's like in her 40s. It's been a while. She really wants a, a companion. But the movie is more or less about her kind of uh, finding 
value in herself as a person, not just as a mom and as a spouse, but like trying to value herself. I fell in love with it. I think it's a great movie. I haven't watched the original uh, just yet. They just added it again to Hulu. So I definitely want to watch the original and uh, compare them. But what can, what I can tell from the trailers, they are very similar. But I, I definitely think, even though this is a remake, I think Julianne Moore should get more recognition for what she's done. Julianne Moore is a, is a, a wonderful actress and a, an actress that knows how to skillfully balance making big commercial properties and then doing the you know the art house movies that it seems that she really wants to do. That's another one that I haven't seen, and in fact. That's two out of your five I've not even heard of. That really scares me now. Right. Okay. okay. Number two. You should know this one. Uh, my number two pick is Wild Rose. <gasps> Love yeah. it. So, Love um, it. We interviewed uh, one of the composers on this and worked on the songs. So one of our episodes of this year is an interview with Rupert Christie when he was doing the music for Fisherman's Friends. He speaks quite a lot about the work he did on Wild Rose and just raved about the singer on there. If you haven't heard it, I mean, so not that I want to sort of push our shows on you. Yeah, if you listen to what Rupert has to say about Wild Rose, I think you'll get a real kick out of it. So what do you think of the film? Definitely going to listen to that episode. That sounds great. I am not necessarily a country music person, but I thought the trailer looked really great. Uh, when it comes to country music, I usually just kind of stick to like that 50s, 60s era, Johnny Cash, Dolly Parton. Yep. Um, I normally, like I don't like modern country music very much. I haven't found much that I do like. So I was a little skeptical of how I would feel about the music when I went in, but definitely halfway through I had kind of fallen in love with the soundtrack so much and the actress, Jesse Buckley, does such an amazing job in this movie. Yeah. I literally bought the soundtrack right after my movie let out. I went on my phone, bought it right away. Um, I, I, I don't know if there's really much I can say that everyone else hasn't said. Like, so the performances are great. The story is incredibly touching. The music is phenomenal. I would love for it to get best original song this year at the Oscars, even though that's probably not going to happen. The final song in the movie is just so breathtaking, especially the way it's shot. Again, I won't, I won't describe it because I don't want to spoil it for people, but I will say that uh, there was a woman sitting across the aisle for me, and during the final scene, she was literally sobbing. Like, I can audibly hear her sobbing from across the movie theater. That's how powerful that scene is. That scene is not only powerful from the music and her performance, but it's also that she's grown up. thought it was such a, a journey she goes on from being really when you first meet her, you think, what an idiot. And then you fall in love with her. And it's her passion for the music that makes you want her to succeed. I just thought it was a fabulous, fabulous movie. And if people want to listen to Rupert Christie's interview, it's show 43 of uh, At The Flicks. So I'll shamelessly plug that particular episode. What he says about Jesse Buckley, I mean, he just, Rupert just raves about her. He did, absolutely raved about her. So, yeah, I think you'll get a kick out of it, Hedio. Okay, I know that sounds great. Definitely going to cue that up uh, probably later today when I'm doing Christmas shopping. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) And so your top film. Okay, um, again, I feel like this one is, if you follow me on Twitter, uh, this one is really obvious, and I mean, I don't think anyone should be surprised that my number one, which 
again, I said the rankings might change. This is most likely going to stay my number one film is Pedro Amadovar's Pain and Glory. Ah, same as our Neil. That he, Neil but that is his uh, that. number one. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just such an amazing piece of work. I've already seen it twice in theaters. I would have gone to see it another time if it didn't leave our area so quickly. I think it was only here for like two weeks. I think people might find this a little odd, but if you've watched his movies and you've, if you've seen this film, I think it might make a little bit of sense that I I have called this movie the Avengers Endgame of Almodovar movies, and that's <laughs> what it really feels like. You, you just lost me there. <laughs> you, you said something about Marvel, and yeah, it just went. I just lost then. Sorry. His ears went blocked yeah, off. Yeah. yeah. Other than that, it was going so well. Um, <laughs> again i know from what neil raved about it and the performances and just every everything about it do you think sort of from a filmmaking perspective it, it just reveals something about the director yes definitely um and and i can answer this question and elaborate on my point a little bit again this movie had you know 20 movies before it to build up to this Uh and very much very much in this movie he goes back and he references so many of his other works and ties them together because he's not saying well these are my other movies per se he's saying okay this is how it all tied into my life like this is how bad education was a part of my life and this is how Volver was a part of my life and this is how broken embraces was a part of my life because he's laying it out there and he's saying these are all pieces of my life they're not just movies so when I reference these past movies in this movie, I'm letting you know that this is how personal it all really was. And that, you know, Penelope Cruz was always my mom. The reason I cast her in Volver as my mom and the reason she, you know, played the part that way and the reason she plays a very similar part in this movie in a very similar way is because I'm trying to let you know, like, this is how who my mother was. This is how she was with me. This is how my childhood was. And um, I just I just think it's really phenomenal the way he did that, the way he tied it all in together again, very much like Endgame did with all the Marvel movies, tying, you know, 20 movies into one and, you know, making it feel amazing to watch this movie and to just see all the the references and the callbacks to all those movies I've spent the last few years watching. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So there we've had. Both the Cruise sisters mentioned in people's favourite films this year. I, I think that's an incredible top five. There's things there I ha- that I haven't even heard of, never not seen. And the way, you know, Hadil, you've described them, I definitely want to see them. So I really do appreciate that. Thank you very much. So we just have to, if we can just stop at the flicks for a year and go and catch up on all the films we haven't watched. Everything would be great. That'd be great. (laughs) We'll be right back, Hadil. We're just going to be away for a year. And we're old and sort of semi or almost all retired. We still haven't got the time. There's just too much good stuff to see. And it's coming from everywhere. It used to be Hollywood and now it's just the world is firing great movies at us. Hadil? Thank you very much for your time on this. Good luck with your Christmas shopping. Yep. And have a great Christmas. Thank you very much. You've got a great list. That was fabulous. Again, thank you for having me. Thank you for letting me rant on longer than I probably should have. No, no, not at all. Not (laughs) not at all. Thanks, Adil. And I hope we are able to speak more to you during 2020. Graham? As we would do in the Generation Game, over to you to introduce the next contributor, please.
In episode 63, we spoke to Emma about her film-watching experience at the 2019 London Film Festival. Now, Emma sees a lot of films, and so we just had to catch up with her again to ask what she rates as the best of 2019. Hi, Emma. How are you doing? Hi there. I'm good, thank you. Looking forward to your Christmas? Oh, when I'm finished preparing for it, yes, I'm sure it'll be great. (laughs) It's been an interesting film year. How many films have you roughly seen? We're just going off cinema visits. I actually last weekend cracked the 200 mark. So I think I'm about 210 films in total now. I hope you're listening to Uh, this, Phil Foster. Or as we know him, Lightweight Phil Foster. (laughs) That's his new nickname, Lightweight (laughs) Phil Foster. As I was looking through my listing, it's been a, I'm going to say it's been a good year for film, but not a great year. What was the most disappointing aspect of your year? Oh, I kind of wish I could erase Endgame. Oh, uh, Emma, fantastic. <laughs> Thank oh, you. Bloody hell. I love the MCU. I, I absolutely love it. And I, Infinity War was by far one of the, the best films I've seen in a long time. See, and, and this uh, is what I said. This is exactly what I said. Did you pay her to say no, this? No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I went to the midnight screening and I was super excited for it. And I came out and I was like, well, that happened. Okay. I was like, oh, maybe I'm just, you know, middle of the night. Maybe I'm just tired. And I watched it again and I was like, no, that didn't get any better. I mean, um, let's, let's be fair. If it started at midnight, when you come out, light must have been breaking. <laughs> nearly, uh-huh. nearly. <laughs> I, that's certainly up there in the, the things I would like to erase from this year. So we're not going to see this in your top five then? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, oh I'm looking forward to this now. Yep. On to <laughs> Moving on to that subject then, what is number Ooh. five in your list? I've actually gone with things mainly that I feel like I could watch again and again. They rated really highly for me. So there's, there's actually only one thing in there that, I don't think I would watch again, but I, I was so impressed seeing it. And uh, that will probably get my number five slot, which is Everybody Knows. It's actually a Spanish language film with Penelope Cruz and Javier Bardem. It's got quite a small release, but I did manage to see it, thankfully. What's it about? Penelope Cruz plays uh, a woman who goes back to her hometown to take part in her sister's wedding. And while she's there, Obviously, you know, it's a small town. Everyone knows everyone else. And her past is a, there's a, a little bit of a murky area in it. She ends up, her child gets kidnapped. And it's the, the story of how they like get through that and get the, the child back. And like just all the relationships with the family and friends and the, the rest of the people in the, in the area and uh, out in the, the country. And it's, fantastic visually and Penelope Cruz in it was just magnificent her performance was so emotional and powerful I, I wasn't really sure what I was going to expect you know seeing seeing those two in it you think oh well that's, that's going to be pretty good but I was really impressed with with the performances that came out of it sounds like it was a tough watch basically a collection of, of people watching it all crying just <laughs> I think everyone at some point got some got some tissues out to sort of hide the fact that they were snivelling in their seats like me. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was it was very impressive, and uh, for the sake and really great performances, especially from Penelope Cruz. 
Well, that sounds fabulous. I shall watch that. Number four, I'm sure lots of people will argue with me on this one. It's Crawl, which came out, I think it was in August. Yeah. Um, and that's the Creature Feature starring, uh, what's her name? Uh, is it Kaya? Oh, I shouldn't have even tried to say it. Kaya. Barry Pepper. Valerio, and, yeah, and Barry, Barry Pepper. Pepper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I should have started with the easy one. Yeah. <laughs> I love a Creature Feature and I absolutely love this film. I just thought it was great. So you start with a very deep and sophisticated arty film, and now you've gone straight to Creature Feature. Something you'd never watch. Something I'd never watch. (laughs) There is nothing consistent about my list other than I had a great time watching these Excellent. (laughs) That's brilliant, brilliant. I was not expecting that at all. Right, okay, Crawl at number four. Wow. Do you remember The Conjuring 2? I I don't watch those sorts of films. Seriously? (laughs) In The Conjuring 2, which is based on a true, supposedly true ghost story. I know you're Supposedly true yeah, ghost right. story, <laughs> en- which en- don't en- exist, well, yeah. The Enfield uh, poltergeist. The team from The Conjuring come over, and they go under the house where the cellar's flooded. And this cellar bears no relation to this, like, two up, two down semi in a London street, right? It's like a lake underneath there. And that is my reference into Crawl. That everything looks fine until they go in the cellar and it's like massive. Well, you know, it, it's cinema space, you know. <laughs> the magic of the movies. Okay. So let's talk about trapping a crocodile or an alligator with a shower door. Look, you know, I believe it. <laughs> it's one I, step I, up I, from I, a shower curtain. That's all we can say. I am going to use that technique if ever I am in that situation. <laughs> Okay, okay. Uh, or I will be fine. Yeah. yeah, it is a great deal of fun. Great music score, and it is a good cast. <laughs> Barry Pepper, the most underused actor in Hollywood, I think. Yeah, he really took a a beating in this one. I mean, any film where they put a dog in there and someone like sacrifices themselves to save that dog, I mean, even even better. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't happen with me. That dog's the first thing in its oh, mouth, no. I'll tell you that. Yes. Yeah. Cool um, and heartless, Jeff. Just cool and heartless. Okay. No, it is a great deal of fun. I'm now really curious as oh, to God, number I, three. I'm, I'm, absolutely, <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat now. Right, number three. Oh, dear. Right. Ooh. Right, I'm going number three. I'm going uh, the new uh, Netflix Christmas movie, Klaus. Klaus? Uh, yeah, now I love Christmas films. Always a little bit suspicious of when they bring out new ones because they don't seem to quite have the same shine as the old ones do. But but Klaus is an absolutely beautifully animated film, and it's really got some heart in it. Uh, in fact, I just started watching it again today, and uh, it's just a really lovely film. And it's definitely one that I'm going to be watching repeatedly come Christmas time every year. Um, that's just gone on my list. I. I... <laughs> I also like Christmas movies. We have a huge argument amongst the team about one in particular, which they all hate and it, I love. It is. Are we talking Die Hard? Because that's a Christmas film. Uh, Die no, Hard no, we're is talking, my Christmas film. We're yeah. talking Christmas with the Cranks. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I love that film. Uh, I love it all the more because Neil hates it so much. So what's the, the story behind Klaus? It's basically like the origin story of Santa Claus. The main character in it, he's training to be a postman the thing that lots of people in his community do. He's in this little academy for postmen. 
and uh, his father runs it. So he's obviously taking it easy. He doesn't think it's a very serious thing in his life. It's just happening. And his father tells him that he, he needs to get his act together and to prove you know, that he can actually achieve something. He's sending him out to the middle of nowhere to start off a new post office. And he has to reach a target in that year. And if he doesn't, he's cutting off. So he goes off to Nirenberg in the middle of a, a very drab part of their, their world. Basically, the whole town is, is having a, a fight. There's two sides, and all they do is, is argue and play tricks on each other, and it, it's not a very nice place to be. We follow him as he tries to get these people to communicate more by by sending letters and it, it's not working and he's about to give up when he discovers that there's a property out in the remote region and he, he decides that's his last chance. So he goes up there and he finds a, a woodsman called Klaus and it all sort of revolves around the fact he's made all of these toys and he's got a, a barn full of them and he starts bringing them down to the children in the village and it shows you how the community evolved from the good deeds that start happening from this. It's just wonderful. It's the Father Christmas origin story, basically. Yeah. Oh, of a, brilliant. Of a that sounds great. <laughs> that sounds great. But I've just looked it up. It's got a hell of a cast. J.K. Simmons. J.K. Simmons. Can't go wrong with J.K. <laughs> and Joan Cusack. Yeah. Yep. So we're going to just diverge off this in a little minute then. What would you call great Christmas movies? Well, Random ones, not numbered, you ever. <laughs> you don't have to do them in alphabetical <laughs> order either. No. Oh, thank goodness. Obviously, I love that Home Alone. That, that's just right up there. Always one of my favourites. Bet you can't oh, wait for that Christmas. remake, eh? <laughs> um, oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, thought so. <laughs> and I do watch that every year. In, in fact, I do actually watch that when it's not Christmas too, just because it's really uplifting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Terrible, but I actually really enjoy watching what I would call Hallmark Christmas movies. Hey, I've seen like a few a of really them. Really terrible one. Yeah, the Twelve oh, Days yeah. of Christmas Eve. It's a good one. I like that Ooh. one. I'll uh, I'll have to check that one out. That sounds good. But <laughs> I will watch any Christmas movie. To be honest with you, classic one that you should all try and see is called Bone Alone. No, it's not porn. <laughs> How come you could tell where our minds had immediately gone to, Emma? For God's sake, that's worrying. Yeah. That is a classic I picked up for like £2 in Tesco the other day. But yeah, it's about a dog who, who gets left and he saves his house from burglars. It's basically Home Alone with a dog. It's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but it's fantastic. Okay. We're going to have to trust you on that one. <laughs> yeah, maybe I wouldn't bother watching it. But, I, yeah, classic if you can't stop it. Okay. Uh, number two, then. Um, um, uh, before you go oh. to number two, I cannot mm. wait. I really cannot wait. This has been the weirdest top five, I think, ever. Weird in a good way, you know? Uh, okay. Number- trust me, when I was putting the list together, I was looking at all the things I was writing down, and like I had probably about... 20, 25 films just generally that I picked out. And I was like, wow, well, none of these have anything in common apart from the fact I, I enjoyed them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, I don't know whether to go with the sensible one or the not sensible one next. Oh, decision. So number two, 
is uh, the Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon. <laughs> <laughs> now, you say this. Anybody I know who's seen it, nobody's got a bad word well, to no, say about everybody it. Everybody loves it. It's Ardman. Exactly. What, what, what can you do? It's, yeah. yeah I mean, you, you live only down the road from them as well. Yeah, yeah. Do you know yeah. these people? Yes. I sadly don't. I still haven't uh, gone to visit the, uh, the studios. and uh, so, Yeah, they're very close by. So, you know, it feels, feels like it should be one of my top ones. And luckily, it was really good. So, you know, that's okay. But I came out of that and I was... I had such fun watching it. It was really good. And uh, honestly, just the work that goes into doing the stop motion animation is incredible anyway. But the attention to like all the little bits of detail, you know, there's all these little like pop culture references hidden in there. And like just the simple things like, you know, the toast in the toaster coming out of, of it because the bread was sticking out. It wasn't toasted all over. I was just, just the little silly things like that. I was like, someone's actually thought really hard about yeah. how to create this. And it's just that just amazes me every time. But that's Ardman, though, isn't it? The attention to detail they do in their films. Phenomenal. I mean, have you ever seen a bad Ardman film? No, no. But <laughs> things like Flushed Away. Flushed I think Away, is you tremendous read my mind. Yeah. Pirates. Yes. I think that's a fantastic film. Hugh Grant is amazing <laughs> in that film. <laughs> and Early Men. Early man's good, yeah. Yeah, yeah another yeah. Like, wonderful about football. I mean, what? Really? Great yeah. ideas. Okay, that is definitely on my list to watch. In fact, I'll watch the first Shaun the Sheep film as well, which I haven't seen. Uh, and that, that's going to be a good double bill. Definitely need to see that. Excellent. Right. Drum roll in. Anticipation. Okay. What's number one? <laughs> so number one, very sensible one for you. I have put Le Mans 66. That's oh, wow. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's, that's in my um, top five as well. Yeah, I absolutely adored this when I saw it the first time, and it was just even better the second time I saw it. Any film that, that can make me change my opinion about an actor, um, uh, as we said the last time uh, when we talked about the London Film Festival, yeah. I'm not really a Matt Damon fan, but in this, I thought he was incredible. The rapport he had on screen with Christian Bale was amazing. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Just that, uh, that atmosphere you get from the the racing and yeah, how you feel like you're in the car. And I, I absolutely loved it. Yeah. What format did you see it in? Because a lot of people have said the IMAX cut is phenomenal. So I... I didn't see anything, anything with it, I'm afraid. It was just the, the regular old uh, 2D for me. But, uh, yeah, just uh, especially when I saw it in London, it was at the, the big Odeon in Leicester Square. And there, so you've got an incredible like sound system in there. Yeah. And just that atmosphere was amazing. Like, it really, my local cinema is great, but it doesn't have that sound system to it. No. So, uh, like, the, when the engines were roaring, yeah, you could feel it in your bones. You were just shaking with anticipation, waiting for what was happening. So I'm really glad I, I got to, to see it with that impact. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm with, I'm with you on that one. <laughs> Absolutely amazing film, great performances. And I just love the fact you could take it as a sports film or you could mm. look at the business, and that business world reflects where we are today. Yeah, I just enjoyed everything about that film from, from start to finish. Right, so as we reach number one, <laughs> if you were to pick just one film that you'd seen, and obviously you saw a lot in the London Film Festival that hasn't been released yet, that you would have put high up in your list, 
what would it be? A beautiful day in the neighbourhood. Um, yeah. So that was the uh, Mr. Rogers uh, film with Tom Hanks, and that next year that will very, very probably yeah. make my top five. I think. So Emma, I'm just going to call you eclectic from now on, not Emma. <laughs> that is, I mean, that's definitely a good way to describe what I watch at the cinema. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that's a great list. That is a really good list. Yeah, yeah, definitely a couple there. <laughs> I keep saying I'm, I'm glad I caused you uh, some entertainment with it. No, 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 it's a great list. I mean, there's a few things on there I want to watch. So, and I totally agree with your top film, <laughs> as opposed to some other people we've been speaking to. Who've oh, he's not been happy tonight. Emma, picking superhero it. movies. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, have you read Empire's top twenty? I I've been avoiding the the list at the moment. I while I I thank you very much for inviting me on to do this. It has caused me some pain because like we're not we're, we're not here at the to end help. of the year yet. I <laughs> I still have films to watch. So making yep. this list with some yep. leftover, it's not not no. sitting well with me. No, Phil Foster <laughs> but, um, caveated his list as well for that yeah. very same thing. It could change. When Cats comes out and is in everybody's top <laughs> oh, five, God, so. you'll say, yeah, he was right after all. <laughs> yeah, and hell might freeze over. Yeah, right, well, yes. I tell you now, it, unless that Star Trek, fil- Star Trek, that Star Wars <laughs> film goes some, it ain't going to be that. I'll tell you no, that now. J.J. No, Abrams, oh, this is a guy that knows how to start something, doesn't know how to bloody finish it. Yeah, okay. I'm looking at you lost, yes. Right. Lost? Fringe? <laughs> oh, Fringe. Star Trek film series? Yeah, right. I okay. would excuse him Super 8, but even then he just copied Spielberg. Emma, it's it's been an absolute blast, and uh, I look forward to speaking to you more in the new year. Thank you very much. Thank you, eclectic, yeah. Emma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much for having me on again. Oh, that's brilliant. Cheers. Thank you very much. Well, we've sadly run out of time for the show. But, Graham, we haven't finished all the contributors yet. Don't panic, Jeff. Part two will be following this weekend. That's right. Please tune in on the first weekend of 2020 to hear part two of the At The Flicks Top Movies of 2019. And, as always, thanks for listening. To make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, attheflicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website, attheflicks.uk. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.